Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, everyone. Asadallah, masa'akum, bikulli khair. Hello, uh, my name is Maurice Pomerantz. I'm the senior director of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. I want to welcome you tonight to our first talk of our 15th anniversary season. Now, some of you may have seen that our new motto for this 15th anniversary season is explore, share, and grow. And we have a packed schedule of amazing talks for this new year. And I encourage you to explore us on all of your social media channels. But I can't think of a more opportune way to, be, to begin this season than with this event, which is about exploration. Uh, Aristotle states in his poetics that a great poet, and by that I think he means a great human, but let's just keep a great poet, shows the greatest capacity to find similarities in dissimilar things. For Aristotle, this is something that cannot be taught, and it is a sign of what he terms innate cleverness. Now, our speaker tonight, the cosmologist and jazz musician, Brown University professor of physics, Dr. Stefan Alexander, appears as one such person with these kinds of innate gifts. His academic work draws together cosmology, particle physics, and quantum gravity, exploring the relationships between subatomic particles and the vast spaces of the universe. Along the way, he and his colleagues have authored groundbreaking research that continues to extend such theories as Einstein's theory of general relativity, which we've perhaps all heard of. Tonight, though, Dr. Alexander will follow in some of the steps of that giant and others. Uh, we'll hear he's, and these giants are, are folks like Pythagoras, Kepler, Einstein, and yes, John Coltrane, in thinking about how music and cosmology might have something to do with one another. Tonight's conversation will be the best kind of discussion, one that brings together two seemingly dissimilar things. And it is my double pleasure tonight to invite as Dr. Alexander's interlocutor, fellow explorer of uncharted realms, uh, and other improvisational artists, <laughs> uh, um, our own multi-talented provost, Dr. Arlie Petters. Now, prior to joining us here in Abu Dhabi in 2020, uh, Dr. Arlie Petters was Benjamin Powell Distinguished Professor of Mathematics at Duke University, a former Dean of Academic Affairs for Trinity College of Arts and Sciences, and Associate Vice Provost at Duke. Petter's principal research interests include mathematical physics, scientific methods in business administration. He focuses on mathematical finance and entrepreneurship, and you can see where this is going, innovation <laughs> in STEM fields, in developing nations, on a whole wealth of other talents that we know him uh, for because he's here. Um, so without that, I, without further ado, I welcome you both to the stage and look forward to your conversation. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Maurice. <laughs> 
I tell you, I extend a huge, huge thank you and welcome to such a rich and diverse audience. And in the spirit of our distinguished and honored guests, uh, to really play jazz in this interview. You notice I have no paper and we're just going to free flow and feed on each other. And we will also be honored with uh, certain uh, pieces that we will just simultaneously pick. And uh, 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 Dr. Alexander is going to play certain pieces as we engage in a conversation. So, but let us begin. You and I are from the Caribbean, and uh, you are from a special part of the Caribbean, uh, Trinidad. Tell us about. Say, I thought you were going to say Belize. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you, you are a special guest. So, but tell me about those early days, the childhood in Trinidad, inspiration. Were you playing any instruments then? Um, it's interesting. Thanks. Um, first of all, it's a real honor to be out here. Um, I mean. Wow, I'm blown away by, uh, by um, Abu Dhabi and the Emirates. I, I was recently out. And this actually, this is a part of the answer to your question because it, um, the part of Trinidad I grew up in, so Trinidad and Tobago is a twin island republic. Um, it is considered to be genetically the most diverse place on earth, according mm -hmm. to a geneticist colleague of mine. So genetically, in terms of different pe pe people from different parts of the world, um, I know Belize is in a, in a you know a close second because that's where <laughs> Provost Pettis is also originally from, um, and so because of that multiculturalism, Trinidad was that place where you know if I give the, the village that I grew up in, which is the southernmost coast of Trinidad, called Bastier. Um, I believe it was in Columbus's last um, voyage, he mistook Trinidad to be a continent, even though it was an island. And when he got over to Trinidad, um, he saw South America, seven miles away. Um, Trinidad was named after the um, Trinidad. He saw these three mountains, and he said, this, I'm going to name this one after the Almighty of the Holy Trinity. So it's a very beautiful place. So you know, growing up in that type of nature, um, just as a kid, you're just in awe with the beauty and like um, it was very close to the ocean. Mm -hmm. And so I used to sit on top of a hill a lot. Mm -hmm. There used to be this hill, um, just sitting there doing nothing, staring at the rhythm of the ocean yes. and listening to just the rhythm of the waves. And I think that that definitely had, it's a very musical culture. Um, but because it's multicultural, um, you can't help but grow up with a lot of curiosity. Mm -hmm. So that thing, that combination of the curiosity the, 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 and just the, the sort of the musicality of the culture um, was a big thing. And when my parents immigrated to um, New York City, um, we immigrated to the Bronx, New York in the 80s, early 80s. Um, I actually didn't want to leave. I was, I was like, why, why are y'all taking me away from this beautiful place? My friends are here. Right? So, so, so that's uh, the first impression. That, that's about interesting. It. So, you know, growing up in such a beautiful, vibrant, energetic environment, you have the waves, right? The sea that's soothing and at times energetic, uh, particularly if you're going to have a little storm come through. Oh, yeah, we have Or storms. a thunder shower. And then you sit on the beach, yes, Stefan. And 
you feel that breeze, which is also a fluid in motion. And so I'm getting that you have naturally been immersed in all these vibrations, right? And the steel pan. And I'm curious, in the early days of experiencing music and rhythm and vibration, were you on this, exposed to jazz at that point? Or was it when you went to the US? That's right. The jazz and, you know, yeah, the jazz definitely happened in the U.S. But, um, but let's go back to the steel pan. The steel pan was an instrument that was, of yeah, course... For so, you, you all yeah. know what steel pan is, I assume, right. the beautiful... The steel yes. drums, right? It's a, it makes a ding, 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 that sound. Boom, 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 right? So it's a... And the thing, it was invented, it was the only, just an interesting fact, the steel pan or steel drum is the only instrument that was invented in the 20th century that was not based on any other instrument. So it was like, so it was, and how it came about, it was interesting. So Trinidad is 40% from East India, mm -hmm. right? So people from India left India to come to Trinidad, um, usually as indentured servants or merchants. And the other, and it's also mixed with an African uh, population, um, and of course everything else, yes. Chinese, um, some European, Lebanese as well, Syrian, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's interesting because the steel drum is a, an amalgamation, it's a combination of the West African drum and the tassa, the drum, the Indian drum. Yes. So the way you beat the steel pan, the same way you have those drums that from India that you put around your neck and that during the Indian weddings, they roll it. So it has the same type of technique, but it's, it's a combination. Yeah. And it's because of that mix that instrument was, you know, came to... to um, well, I tell you, I think it's a perfect time for him to get on the sax and <laughs> interpret that experience you had in childhood. Whoa, whoa, he's well, going to make me improvise. We're totally improvised. Why don't you give us your response to that, hmm. uh, to the sax? Okay. Well, if you, if you all don't mind, do you mind? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see, let's see, let's try something. I'm going to improvise a steel pan, okay. Yes. Okay, let's see. Thank you. 
God. Thank you. <laughs> and so growing from the, the, those childhood days, you moved to New York. Tell us about when the physics and the mathematics and the exposure, when did that begin? You know, we moved from one place um, in the world that you know, brought you know, all these different types of people from different walks of life, different cultures, Trinidad and Tobago, to the Bronx in New York, which is um, a home of immigrants, you know, yes. so people from all over the Caribbean. And in fact, was, I never fought, felt more Caribbean away from the Caribbean. <laughs> because then, you know, we had neighbors from Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. from across the street from Pakistan. We had these Italian that owned a, a deli. Um, the, the Amados, Joe Amado was an interesting guy. He was a mob guy, unfortunately. He's a nice guy, though. Um, <laughs> he was great to the kids. The kids loved Joe Amado until the FBI came looking for him. Um, and um, yeah, um, Polish, uh, Irish, yeah. um, you know, so it was that kind of neighborhood. Um, and the jazz actually came in a very interesting way. So um, I used to listen to a lot of rap music because at the time rap music was coming on the scene in the Bronx. Who were some of the rappers you were listening to? Well, I mean, Rakim, okay? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Okay, the great Rakim. Yes, yes. Well, he was definitely a, a force of one. Uh, Run DMC. Oh, know, Run DMC. Old, I love Run DMC. LL Cool J when he was uh -huh. walking with a, you know, he had a little leopard. Well, a Jaguar. <laughs> I think it was Jaguar. Um, MC Hammer? Okay, ah, I, used listen, ah, I used to listen to MC that Hammer. That genie pants? Yeah, How many of us remember that? MC Hammer, right? <laughs> Love me some MC Hammer, of course. Even Vanilla Ice. Oh, yes. Ice, yes. ice, baby. Yes. Right? So, you know, that was... But one time I was listening to... Um, there was this mailman, this Puerto Rican guy. He used to come deliver mail, right? Uh -huh. And I was... I think I was homesick, quote-unquote sick. And um, he walked by our house, and he heard me listening to some music. He went, that ain't music. He goes, tomorrow, I'm going to bring a CD for you. Back then, we had CDs for all the young people in the audience. I'm going to bring a CD for you. Um, so the next day, he actually bought a CD. And it was a CD of um, a sax player named Gato Babieri. He's mm. an Argentinian sax player. And the album was called Caliente. Oh, yeah, and that yeah. was my first taste, not only of jazz, but of Latin jazz. Mm -hmm. And that is the thing, because that music, connected also to the Caribbean because, as you know, yes. Latin America is right there, too. So again, the jazz, um, that was just a very natural part of growing up in the Bronx, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's really an, a music that combines different things as well. It's a, a, a we call a Kalaloo. Can you tell the audience what a Kalaloo is? <laughs> well, have, how many of you know what it is? Oh my gosh, well, it, this is surely something more in Trinidad. Um, you, you enjoy eating this. Uh, so for, for example, if you take a plate of food and you look at that in the Caribbean or you look at it in, in my own country, there's so much rich history already in that uh, particular combination uh, of inputs. And so I, I feel as I take your journey, food, diversity of peoples, musical rhythms. You are not a normal math science genius kind of kid, right? This man was immersed in, in all the different 
cultural and rich dimensions. You're immersed in the heritage. And then if we fast forward the story, Brown University, working on your PhD, how that journey happened? That's a very interesting journey. In fact, I'm a, I, one of my old classmates is actually in the audience. So he's here to check on me to make sure my friend uh, Moataz out there. Um, so he's here to check and make sure I ain't, I'm not pulling anybody's <laughs> leg here. Um, well, you know, I went to college. You know, I was, um, I did get into music when I was in high school. Uh, my friends created a rap group that I was a part of, even though I don't know how to rap to save my life, okay? I was making beats and that kind of stuff, but, and they were like, you need to go to college. You, you know, we'll, we'll stay here and continue doing the, the rap music stuff. Um, and I went off to college. Um, and there in college, I discovered, um, I discovered, I didn't discover physics. I had a good physics teacher. I had a good high school physics teacher who was also a musician. Yeah. That, that's actually very important because Oftentimes when we, as young people, right, we tend to follow things not only based on the intrinsic interests, but maybe because of social pressures. Maybe we feel we fit more into this than that, right? Because society says so. So here I had this amazing teacher who was like a, he looked like a, like a little Albert Einstein himself, <laughs> but he played the jazz saxophone. Mm. And he kind of made it okay. It was a normal thing to have this person who did physics and also played the saxophone. To me, it was like, well, that's a normal thing because I, I don't know what's out there in the world. So I go to college, and I majored in physics and minored in music. Yes. And, and actually, I wasn't the top. I wasn't really some brilliant student or anything like that. I was a knucklehead, OK? I mean, I mean I went, you know, it's, it's important to, you know, to say those things. Um, so I really wasn't that focused. But anyway, I did know that the life of a scientist, meaning doing research, was a good, was a good con. You know what a con is? Like a, a good game, because wait a minute, people, get, people pay you to hang out somewhere when nobody's watching and you're supposed to be doing research? I get paid? I don't have to, you know, put it, you know, you check in to, to get, what's it called? When you, you have to put a card yeah, to start the, work? Yeah, the swipe. Yeah, you know, check in eight hours and somebody's watching. So this idea of like, Doing research, you think about things or you work on something. I was like, let me give that a try. And I had the opportunity um, because I had some really good mentors. And that's really, really important. So I go to Brown University. And again, Moots can tell me, that's his nickname, could tell you, I, I, I was probably like the worst student in the first year. I was that dude, OK? Because I used to go to and hang out in the jazz clubs in Providence. That, that's, a, that's where Brown University was at. I used to hang out with the jazz musicians, mm -hmm. right? Because Providence was a very musical town. Yes. So, you know, as I listen to the story, and we're, we're going to transition into the cosmology and the jazz now, you're someone that has gone along an unorthodox path. And I am sure you, know, you bring the heritage of the Caribbean, and it, it, there's a sort of spirit and soul that comes with this engagement throughout. You keep this connection with music. And I'm sure this unorthodox path you're taking, going for the PhD in physics, but not just 
uh, any area of physics, particle physics, highly theoretical, very difficult, doing original research in that space. Perhaps let us now turn to all this rhythm. We know that the physical world is in vibration and constant vibration. Everything is in relative motion. And we also know that it's very interesting when uh, you look in physics, and for those of us uh, who are teaching this in J-term now, I'm sure you have touched on elements of it, but we learn a lot from Newtonian physics that you input the position and momentum of the particle, and then you can predict the trajectory. You know where this thing is gonna go. Then comes quantum mechanics that messes that up that you can't know these two things simultaneously. Therefore, the future path of the particle, you cannot know with certainty. Mm -hmm. So this thing, this uncertainty principle, shows up a lot, and in your book, and in the many other work that you do, mm -hmm. you're seeing these analogies mm -hmm. with physics. Tell us about that. Yes, that's an important thing because my way, you know, so yeah, I, I had to find myself a little bit when I was, in, when I was yes. doing my studies in graduate school. And what I, what's, what I realized happened, in hindsight, looking back, at it, I didn't know what's happening in real time, was that many of my musician friends were also seekers themselves. The music was just a tool for them to explore. They were exploring with sound, they were exploring you know, to find deeper meaning in their music and how the music affected people, how their own growth as musician and their own musicianship, their own practice. And so some of the principles, um, especially in terms of my mentors in music uh, that I, you know, um, in terms of the practice of music, I found that there were many similarities and overlap um, in, terms of, in terms of that. And especially in research. In, the research that I, that I engage in, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that, is um, theoretical. Uh, my lab is in my head, for the most part, and my lab is with other people. We talk to each other. There's a lot of um, dialogue and argument, argue, you know, debate going on. And there is a sense of improvisation there, too, meaning that there's a structure, which is maybe the theory that you're working on, Right? The thing that you're, the construct, or the, you know, if it's the theory of relativity, um, there may be some, uh, certain anomalies. I'll give you an example. You know, the way our sun, the sun moves around the center of the galaxy, right? It moves at a given speed such that it's able to stay in a stable orbit, meaning that if it's moving too fast or too slow, the orbit that it takes around our galaxy will not be stable. Um, what makes, there's an anomaly, and he, he's an expert in relativity. That's, I read his textbook when I was a student. Um, that there's an invisible form of matter out there that's keeping that orbit, orbit stable. We give it a name, dark matter, but we actually don't know what it is. But we know it's affect, which is that we're happily sitting here on Earth. If, you know, if, if um, that dark matter didn't exist, we would not be in a stable orbit. So there's a theory, but that theory has to confront an anomaly, which is something that the theory cannot explain, but it explains how this glass may fall down here very well. It explains gravity here, but it doesn't explain gravity out there. And so that 
facing that anomaly, you know, learning how to confront the unknown as a jazz imp improviser and the practice that I learned from my teachers of how to, in real, in real time, how to yes. confront the unknown, right? There is improv improvisation is also a practice as well as it is an idea. Yes. And so it was those little ways that, um, so my music friends and teachers were really the ones that really inspired me to stay in science because I realized that I had a way into my science through this practice yes. as a musician. Yes, that, that is interesting and indeed um, not knowing the next move. Not knowing the next move. Right, and so if picking up on that, if we look into the origin of the universe and we go back in time, we go to smaller and smaller time scales, right? Um, can be 10 to the minus 30, 30 seconds. seconds after the Big Bang. And you go back to smaller and smaller time scales and you inject this Eisenberg uncertainty principle, then the energies, if you know that time scale well, the energies are over this vast, crazy, uh, I mean, it's mind-boggling. Trillions and trillions of electron volts, yeah. That's right. And so when you're, you're looking at the space that has that kind of energy, what happens to space and time, right? We, we have these quantum fluctuations, yeah. this crazy sea, right? Mm -hmm. And you could imagine the energies are so high that black holes may even form. You have these ruptures in space and time. So this is what we came from, yes? According to the theory, this is what we, we came from. When you first encountered this, with all that uncertainty, it feels to me like jazz at work, right? There the, are the, all these fluctuations. Could you help us interpret this in terms of some of the ideas in string theory and other mm -hmm. theoretical fronts you have investigated. Yes, so it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, our theories, that if you look at like sort of, when I say our theories, the laws that we now know in physics um, are usually governed by four forces, right? We have four forces. And it's really interesting when you look at the sort of anatomy, like the way a doctor studies the anatomy of a body, you can kind of look at the structure of these forces. They all have one thing in common. And I'm talking about this is known physics, is what we know, and then we yes. can go into the thing where we don't know, is that they all boil down to wave-like motion, right? A fancy word for the mathematically minded, they all obey a second order partial, partial differential equations, all right? which we were talking to the students in J-term this semester um, about the wave equation today, right? I see the students smiling there. Well, it turns out not only does electromagnetism, the electrical magnetic force, and sound wave obey that, but also um, in some approximation of the nuclear interactions, they also obey similar types of wave-like vibrational type of motion. The problem is that they have to also obey the laws of quantum physics. So now you have to pepper this up with some uncertainty, with a lot of uncertainty, um, and which means, um, as you pointed out, that you cannot know two things at the same time. For example, for example, the position of something and how fast it's moving. 
you can only know, the more you know one, the less you know about the other because in some very weird way, they're different aspects of the same thing. So when you're looking like at, at one part of it, you're disrupting the other part. Okay, so that's the basic essence of that. But it turns out that space and time itself, space and time as Albert Einstein taught us, are also interlinked, all right? So when we go back to the early universe at very, very, very early times, right, um, it turns out that time starts getting more and more certain because we're looking at more uh, times, and therefore, the notion of where you're at and what you're talking, what you mean by space becomes completely uncertain. So the very construct of space and time breaks down. And we hit a wall now because the human mind, when we start trying to conceive of this conceptually, then that breaks down, mm -hmm. right? So we, we live in a, so how do you talk about no space and no time? Yes. How do you talk about these categories? And that's kind of where research in the field of quantum gravity comes in. And it turns out, I work on that a little bit, well, and one interesting thing about that is that we have different candidate theories of quantum gravity, right? So there's one called string theory, um, where in that sense, we replace the notion of matter by microscopic fluctuating vibrating strings of energy, and that everything is unified in the string. Different types of matter, the different qualities of matter, um, including space and time, are just different vibrational patterns of the string. Um, there's another approach which says that, you know, another approach of quantum gravity, which actually thinks of space and time as atoms, atomic um, entities. But either way, um, these different approaches are fraught with, um, with difficulties. I mean, right now, I would say that um, we're stuck. Yes. So we need, we need new ideas. We need new, new perspectives and, um, you know, and well, some new jazz. I, I think this is perfect time for yes. going into the quantum vacuum. And you give us a piece that tells, that speaks to the Whoa. uncertainty, right? The breaking down of the structure of space and time. For that to happen, my saxophone will have to come apart. <laughs> well, let, let, let's give it a try. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> you guys are not going to judge me if I, you know, all right? <laughs> if I suck. All right. Uh, I'll try something. I'll try. Uh, I need an idea here. I need an idea. Somebody give me an idea. Someone, please. Dark and matter. Dark matter. Okay, I like that. I like dark matter, good. The what? Okay. Oh, good. okay. <laughs> you just gave, okay, dark matter equinox. Very good. All right. So John Coltrane had a song called Equinox. Okay. <laughs> and dark matter. Oh, 
those quantum fluctuations. And so we're now going to move from the origin in those early stages in the formation of the universe. And uh, perhaps walk us through uh, maybe beyond recombination. So the universe, as you know, was dark. And, but after a certain point, it lit up. And light radiation is able uh, to move uh, around in it as the accelerated expansion of the universe goes forward. Structure begins to appear. And if we keep going forward in time into our present ex uh, epoch formation of our solar system, formation of Trinidad and Tobago, there's a, so this is the middle part of the story. Mm -hmm. um, Tell us a bit about this in terms of when you're looking at the formation of structure of the universe, vibrations, large-scale structure, moving out that quantum realm a bit. Yes. Right. So the standard picture, and we, we have very good confidence, in, extremely well good confidence be, in the 70s. Well, it's a little bit of history. When Albert Einstein came up with his theory of general relativity, which is basically matter and energy will warp and bend the fabric of space. I mean, this fabric is kind of in, it's invisible, but it's still a fabric. We know that because the sun, for example, warps the fabric of space such that when space is warped, Earth, the Earth surfs the contour of that warping. So the circular motion of the Earth or the elliptical motion is really not any force but the affect of the warping of space. And motion is really just planets moving around the contours of that warped space. So the other thing it predicted back in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the 1915s, 1920s um, was a solution called the black hole solution. And that was recently found right in the center of our own galaxies. And we've found thousands of black holes now. Right. Another prediction was ripples of space-time called gravitational waves, mm -hmm. um, and so um, and gravitational lens in your specialty. So the idea that well, I'll have you explain that because you can do much better than me. But anyway, the point is that we know that this is a correct description of gravity, which is space gets warped. Another way space can warp is that space could stretch. Right, and that's the expansion of the universe. So that was another prediction by um, Lemaitre who was actually a priest. He um, fell in love with relativity and he found a solution of that, of, he called it the primeval atom or the cosmic egg. The idea that the universe started off as one point and just expanded out um, under the action of some mysterious explosion. He actually uses that conviction and his belief in, in God, actually, that God created this expanding universe. Um, and we call that now, in modern terms, the Big Bang. So 
We don't understand the Big Bang. We have no, no way, it's still a mystery. But right after the Big Bang, um, there are predictions. Because since space-time expands, but space could ripple, um, the affect of the expansion creates this rippling effect. And it's actually that rippling effect. At some point, as the universe expanded in this very, very hot, dense state, and cooled as it expanded, the light energy that was released um, and the radiation created an environment very similar to the surface of the sun. And the, the, that surface actually uh, carries particular types of waves. Those waves are called pressure waves. Air is a pressure wave, so actually that medium carries sound. So actually the very first instance of, um, of structure in the universe started off as sound waves. Now the energy in the sound waves, okay, um, remember waves carry energy, and gravity loves energy. Whenever gravity sees energy, it likes to create attraction. Just like if you jump up, the gravitational force will attract you back to the Earth. So the sound energy in the early universe, that's all there was at that time, there was no, right, collapsed and coalesced to form the first stars. All right, so there are different types of stars that were formed. And everything I'm saying here have been observationally confirmed. All right, so this picture in the 1970s, our, your, your professor, Jim Peebles at Princeton, so when you did your PhD at Princeton, he predicted this in the 70s, and this was found in the, in the early 90s in, by the Kobe satellite and the WMAP satellite, David Spurgel, and the Planck satellite. And he got the Nobel Prize recently for this prediction that the sound waves in the early universe were the things that ignited the first structure, the first stars, which then eventually created the you know, planets and all that stuff. So it all started off as sound waves. And I find yes. it to be completely, um, you know, what's the word? Um, validating as a musician. Yes. Well, I, I, I think that uh, I would like to get a little philosophical for a moment. Uh -oh. You look at your audience and you think about this topic and what draws you in. We find ourselves on this planet. We didn't ask to be born. We are born and we become conscious of the world. And for those who grew up in the Caribbean like ourselves, very little light pollution. You look up at the sky and you're seeing the result of this formation of structure through thousands of stars that you can see with, with, with the eye. Um, but then all of this stuff is happening. We don't understand why. The laws of physics, one of the things you learn is that you don't put a person in there, that this thing is going to true, to be true in, in the sense of the scientific method, no matter who is the observer. And you have this rich diversity of reality. And then you're listening to Ron DMC in the clubs, and you're feeling this rhythm. And it, it can even be trance-like at times in the way music moves us. It could feel mysterious. And then you have all of this other stuff that we're trying to understand in our reality. And so I recall as a child thinking about these things, Learning the mathematics, I felt a philosophical grip that also had an aesthetic balance to it, an aesthetic draw 
that I also got from music, or just listening to you play what I would call the, the quantum vacuum, right? You just improvise that. So this connection. Thanks for I the title made, of my next album, <laughs> Quantum right. Vacuum. This connection between <laughs> the human experience and rhythm and music, and you're looking into the world, right? That you, that you, you sense there's some resonance that what is happening on earth in some ways, that there are similarities in the structures theoretically in what you see out in the cosmos. And if I pick one example, uh, gravitational lensing has to do with the interplay of gravity and light. And if you have a, uh, you're drinking your coffee put some cream in it and it's hot enough, you're gonna see that famous curve that's shaped like this. You have the cusp point. These structures that you're seeing right in your coffee cup, the light in the universe acted upon by this Einstein theory mm -hmm. and the gravity, in other words, creates light caustics in the universe. And it does it at any wavelength. It's similar to the stuff you see in the coffee cup. And so if so you that was a lab experiment, you used to drink coffee. That's right. <laughs> and so this earthly thing that is ordinary, that can even move you in its beauty, it shows up in the structure of the equations yes. that are governing these things we see. Yeah. Tell us about that feedback as you look at these connections and the analogy, how they inspire your jazz practice, right? Or how they may, in the oh, reverse, wow inspire I mean, physics. Well, I'm going to have to embarrass another person in the audience and, you know, um, one of NYU's own Robert Rowe, the great Robert, the legend, um, pioneer. Robert is right over right there in there. the corner hiding. Okay. Welcome, Robert. Yeah. So, I He's mean, teaching a J-term uh, with Stefan. Yeah, and uh, we're teaching a class called Jazz, Hip-Hop hip in the Cosmos, Hip-Hop, Jazz in the Cosmos, which is exactly this point. And it's kind of amazing that NYU Abu Dhabi is the first place to have a, a course like that. So you guys yes. should be very proud yes. um, to make that happen. Thank you, Carol. Um, Carol Brandt over there. Um, so, you know, so it, it's funny you're saying this. As you're saying this, I was laughing inside of me. I was like, man, this is nuts. Because <laughs> when I was back in, like in 2008, you know, first of all, you know, I'm a, People consider me, I'm a serious academic physicist, okay? <laughs> I do have to pay my bills and write papers and do all that stuff, you know, with all the reindeers, play the reindeer games, okay? However, there is this part of me that always, even after I became a professor and got tenure and all that stuff, I was still dabbling in this stuff. And the way I used to do this was I had friends in New York that would have events. And there was this place called the Cornelius Street Cafe uh -huh, in New York uh -huh, yeah. that would have these events where they brought artists and musicians and scientists and thinkers. Um, it, started by, it was started by a person named uh, Mandelbrot and uh, um, Roel Hoffman, a Nobel laureate who was a poet in chemistry. And he invited me to come talk about the Big Bang in music. Uh, obviously, it's the East Village in New York, so any, anybody would listen to me, right? I mean, it was a place of a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> like myself. So I have a great audience. And who else was there? This music composer person who is talking about trying to teach you to have a computer, some com a computer character learn how to improvise. And it was him. 
Robert Rowe. So here we are, you know, talking about different aspects of music, and in this case, music and computation and computers and artificial intelligence, and in my case, physics, you know, the universe, and music. Again, these are very out there, ill-formed ideas that were not to be taken seriously in the academy, necessarily. However, there was, I don't know, um, an, uh, you know an intuition, going back to the, the point that you raised, that we sometimes see certain themes repeat themselves in different situations, right? Little did I know that um, one of the fathers of modern science, Pythagoras, the Pythagoreans, and even other cultures going beyond just the Western cultures, um, um, for example, when we look at certain Eastern music and Arabic music, for example, mm -hmm. like the music had a cosmic vibration to it. I was unaware of all this. I was ignorant. So this conversation that Robert and I, Robert was really the person, interlocutor, the person that really got, got me to really start taking this connection very seriously. And then I ended up writing a book, mm -hmm. a book, The Jazz of Physics. And, and it was the writing of that book that took me further down the rabbit hole. And I started discovering that there were other people out there who had long before me been thinking about this connection. Yes, well, I tell you the, this artistic impulse that I believe in many ways, and my dear biologists in the audience, uh, this is speculation on my part, but all my instincts tell me that there's something to it, that um, music, the arts, are somewhere embedded deeply in our DNA. And I, I feel that, um, it begins in the early days, even if we look at the literary arts and this, that which is storytelling, you look at some of the paintings, it's trying to make sense of this reality we find ourselves in. And, uh, and it also comes with a soothing, uh, I would say aesthetic and rhythm and vibration that is expressed through drumming that you saw in many cultures, others orally, uh, in all these different forms, that at the end of the day, the artists, the scientists, all the people of inquiry, we're dealing with the same thing in different forms. In fact, you just inspired me to actually prove something, his point to you. I'm actually gonna play a sequence of notes here. Um, the only thing that was gonna, was gonna be an experiment. Um, and what we're going to do is, I'm going to ask you all to, we have to completely deplete all of our senses except the sense of hearing for this thing to work. So on the count of three, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes and just listen. Okay? One, two, three. I'm not warm enough first. <laughs>
you remember the does Thank that sound you. familiar to you? That's a, a love supreme. Mm. All right? And I just played up and down different registers. But actually, the scale that, that it is derived from is the pentatonic scale, which is a universal scale. Every single culture, mm. this is a scale that is most used. And it turns out that that scale is actually based on the energetics of the, the physical energetics of the vibration of a wave. So in other words, if I create any disturbance, any type of vibrational pattern that's natural, it's gonna play something called, it's gonna generate a harmonic series. It's gonna generate other wave patterns that are, that are energetically, meaning minimizes the energetics Right? It optimizes the energetics of this natural vibration. So it's a vibration that's natural. It's embedded in everything that's vibrating. And those vibrations, it comes out naturally from the pentatonic scale. You can generate it from this scale. It is natural. And that's why it exists. Mm -hmm. So if you solve the equations of string theory, for example, it's going to spit that out. If you solve the equation of electromagnetism, it spits those, that, that harmonic sequence I mean, there's some, you know, obviously there's some, we don't want to take this too far. Um, clearly there are different types of wave patterns as we were learning in class today with FM synthesis and things like that, right? Um, but I find that to be, you know, again, this is kind of makes the point that you're, that you're making, right? That here's yes. an example of natural vibrations generating a scale that is universal amongst human beings across the earth. Cultures that never spoke to each other. In Ireland, that is the scale, as it is the scale in Morocco. As this is the scale when I listened to the Carnatic music the other day, it's still there, even though they're doing microtones, right? They do their way, right? But I find it to be amazing. Well, I'll tell you one of the things that, um, as one would listen to your journey, it's the holistic, the holistic story that you are not putting a separation between the scientific activity, you're, you're bringing in all these other human elements in the arts. And this kind of interwoven experience is one of the areas that I think is extremely important. And I feel this nexus of the arts, of technology, the sciences, and on and on, NYU Abu Dhabi tries to create an ecosystem that will approach that space without judgment, allowing everybody, including you, to explore and experience this connectivity between us and the mysteries of the cosmos, right? And so if we, we go back to the universe, this thing is expanding, getting bigger. Dark matter is the bulk of it. Then there's this thing called dark energy. Oh, God, don't get me right? started on that, that, that we're trying to understand. And I say that as we're going towards the, the latter part of the conversation, when we, so the, the, you look at the future of the universe and the best models that we have for that. Tell us a bit about this. <laughs> we're lost. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so we have this, we have theories that again work, you know, so what's science? Science is a, the science to me is, is a well-defined barrier between things that we know very well and things that we don't know at all, right? That boundary 
right, is kind of very well defined in science. I teach a class at Brown, it's a graduate level class called quantum field theory, it's a graduate level class. At the end of class, we do a calculation where we can determine theoretically a quantity up to 13 decimal points of accuracy. With a, you know, it's a, a calculation, okay? And we, this is measured um, at, you know, at Fermilab and the Large Hadron Collider, up to that, but then beyond that, it's anybody's guess. Beyond that 13 decimal points, there are anomalies. But that 13 decimal points, we know it very well. So that's science to me. And the theories that we are dealing with is that 15 decimal point. It's, we're, it's a we, right? So what is this? It's not 13 decimal points now, it's 120 decimal points, okay? So we have measured the effect of some, some form of energy that is nothing like the energy that we're used to, and because we don't know what it is, of course, we give it a name. We give a name to things we don't know, so we call it dark energy. But we really don't know what this thing is. It's a place filler, okay, for something we don't understand. And so it's very important to keep an open mind, but it doesn't stop us from theorizing, and there are hundreds of these, hundreds of models of dark energy. I myself have about five or six of them. Okay, and I'm actually getting them all published, by the way. <laughs> all right, but you know, the point there is that we have these. What? So I'll give you an example of what one of these theories are. So I have a colleague. He's very. He's a brilliant person. I won't name him, but he's a really smart person. And his idea is that there are kind of space-time bubbles that are created. Like you think you're, you're taking a bubble bath or something. So these bubbles are being created in space-time. And as these bubbles are nucleated, meaning that they're created, right, um, that, that basically the dark energy is the action of creating these bubbles in space and time. I mean, it's kind of a weird idea that you know, these bubbles in space-time that's popping in and out of existence as we speak right now. Where are these bubbles? They're quantum bubbles of space-time. Right. Um, so that's one crazy idea of dark energy. My own energy, I have my, energy, my version, I have a theory of dark energy that actually says that um, dark energy is, or, well, it's not really my idea. This was done by a person at another place, that there are wormholes, like little tiny portals in space-time and what the dark energy uh, is the act of these wormholes that are, you know, exist. And so the idea, and that's actually one of the things I do like about, about science, right, is that there's a place to play. Um, but going back to your point, you said something that really, I think, I, I, um, I cannot stress how important it is, at least for me, um, to in academia, especially this is a place where discoveries are made and these questions are being asked, for us to find ways of bridging the silos. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, <clears throat> that's a, if we, if we want to really pass something on to the next generation, I think that's the practice and the attitude that we should have, right? That these things that we call fee a field today was, was a mixture of some other thing two fields, like, you know, you know, you're not a real biophysicist, but there was a time when bio, there, was, there wasn't a field called biophysics. There was a physicist and a biologist, and they spoke to each other, and a field was created. Now I'm not a biophysicist. So this idea yes. of, because that's how knowledge actually is furthered and created. It's really where these interfaces happen, right? 
But it doesn't mean that we don't also, you know, um, we don't know our stuff and we, we're not grounded and we don't know how to solve the equations. It's not an either or that we, are not, we don't respect the traditions. But to forge forward, I think it's super important. I mean, so I was really smiling yeah. inside, yeah. especially hearing it from a provost, <laughs> okay? Let's pick up on that point <laughs> uh, as we go into the, the tail end of the conversation. So we have this whole sociology yes. that's connected with science, with the arts, and these silos, almost like you said, in a lot of older uh, traditional ecosystems, you almost need a visa if you're in the arts and you want to like go that. and talk with the physicists. And each develops its own sense of importance and can cause others to not feel a sense of belonging, to not feel welcome to explore across the divides. And I feel that this is something, surely, that AI is breaking down. Mm, interesting. Right, as it, it allows more access. Um, I, but for the moment, we spoke of the journey, your experience with music, with the, the physics, but the human coming back to Earth, that human engagement to maximize the probability that young people, folks at different stages of their career, could play in the sandbox, rather than you have situations where certain sectors feel that this is my sandbox, I will dominate it and decide who is to come in. We know this sense of superiority and it plays in these identities that keep people out. Tell us how you have experienced this in your journey. Well, I mean, um, you know, the, the, it's very clear that um, in a field like physics where, and again, it's, I was, you know, definitely, I'd love to say, I definitely experienced that. I mean, you know, some of the spaces that I occupied were places that were, you know, con they considered themselves to be very prestigious. Maybe we're number one type of attitude. So what's this guy doing here? It was more like, well, back in those days, I had very long dreadlocks, so I kind of had a look about me. I, had, I, had, I carried a certain type of personality. So I could see, honestly, if, even if I were me, if not, not me, seeing me walk in a room in some like, you know, ivory tower somewhere, and I'm thinking I was number one at Princeton, and I'm sitting here, and I worked really, really, really hard, and what's this Rasta guy coming in here with his thing after a night of clubbing? And a, what? You know, what, how could... You know, how could we let this guy in, this kind of thing? I, we definitely had some of that, right? At the same time, I was fortunate. I mean, I had this, I, I, when I was uh, one of the brightest physicists in my generation, uh, he, uh, I won't mention the name of the place, somewhere <laughs> in the west coast of California, okay? Um, but um, he came from Iran, his name was Shaheen. He was brilliant, um, extremely brilliant. But he, he and I became buddies because he loved yes. that. He th in, in his view, I was some kind of genius because clearly to be looking this way and acting this way, this guy had to be really smart, right? So different people read me in different ways. But the bulk of people read me more of like, this guy's an interloper. You know, he's an imposter. Clearly he's a fake. And we're going to find him out and we're going to out him. Um, so there's definitely that kind of stuff going on. And, but that to me was a very 
it was a great gift because I did make it and I did succeed, right? And that was, you know, 30 years ago, something like that. So what, what that, that's done, it's like made me very, it's creative. I have really good antennas so that now that I'm the professor, now that I run the group, right? You know, I have all kinds of weirdos now, like, you know, um, or, and I, I really try to let, by example, let students know, especially, that you bring your best when you bring yourself. And it's perfectly, and I've met, I've been so fortunate to meet some of the most brilliant people that they don't look brilliant, they don't act brilliant, right? Right, and so like, to me, it's a really big loss. In fact, it's a great, it's a great yes. recruitment tool. You know what, yeah, you actually, <laughs> Don't pay attention to that person. You come here, come talk to me, right? So I think it's, um, so from my experience, I definitely experience that, and I still experience it. Um, and I have, and I know I'm not alone. I know that there, you know, some, I mean, Shirley Jackson, one of the great yeah. uh, nuclear physicists, um, um, you know, won a National Medal of Science in the United States. She, you know, just the other day she was traveling and she had an experience, right? So again, this is, um, but for me, I sort of feel like I'm in a very, it's, I also find it interesting, and I've learned how to, while it sucks sometimes to have that feeling, right, I also know I'm not alone, and I see great opportunity with that. Yes, right? yes. Yeah. So I, I will kind of, say that. Try to put a um, positive spin on it. Exactly. Yeah. So with, with the diversity mm -hmm. comes all these sort of human engagements and uh, tensions and lost opportunities. In fact, uh, when I was a graduate student, I remember Shirley Jackson interviewing me. It's interesting you mention her name. Was it when she was at for Bell Labs? She, oh, at for Bell, Bell Labs, Labs okay. Fellowship. And um, so, you may know Bell Labs is where superconducting was discovered. They have the only physicist who won the physics Nobel Prize twice. And uh, indeed, this whole issue, whether it's gender-related, race, ethnicity, uh, religion, and all of that, what I love about NYUAD and what I love about the UAE mm -hmm. is the importance of tolerance. Big time. The importance of coexistence. That, to me, stimulates peoples from all over the world. You just see it here in the audience, who can come and catalyze creativity. And to me, that is how a great nation moves forward. And so I say, watch it, the UAE. It's taking its place on the world stage in this regard. You know, I, was, I went to the Grand the Mosque, and yes. I almost like felt the tears. Yes. Seriously, I mean, I'm, I was blown away. And, and especially there was a, a part when you enter into the mosque, and it, it had a sign, like some words, about tolerance. Yes. Um, yes. And that really spoke to me. Yeah. So could you give us a piece about the hopefulness for humanity oh and for your visit here at the UAE and NYU Abu Dhabi? And then we'll open for questions. Okay. Right. I'll try my best.
really. <laughs> well, thank you for this most amazing human journey, uh, Stefan. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.